Today we are looking at one of the most famous oracles of the prophet Isaiah of Jerusalem, who was active in the southern kingdom of Judah during the latter half of the 8th century BC, and whose prophecies make up most of the first 39 chapters of the book that bears his name. Now, normally I ask you to, or suggest, that you read along in your pew Bible as Donna reads, but today I want you to keep your Bibles closed and to listen, to pay attention and to listen as if the, when you were one of those who originally heard Isaiah's words, listen and let this passage do its work. So Donna. This is Isaiah 5, <clears throat> verse 1 through 7. The song of the unfruitful vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I, remo I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Maybe. <laughs> As you may have been described here, Isaiah's love song is not a tender expression of endearment. Oh, to be sure, the song is passionate, but the emotions in it run the gamut from affection to grief to anger. From the start, this love song is an enigma. While we might guess, and rightly so, that the singer is the prophet himself, the identity of the beloved the dear friend, is unclear. Nor do we know to whom the prophet is singing his song. To add to the confusion, it turns out this love song is not about a person, but about a vineyard of all things. Grapes and the wine made from them were staples in the Near East, and vineyards are associated with peace and prosperity in scripture. In Jeremiah 31, for example, the prophet predicts the restoration of Israel following the devastating Babylonian exile. And among other things, he writes, again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and enjoy the fruit. Conversely, the, ability to, the inability to enjoy the fruit of the vineyard was often used as a metaphor for judgment, as in Zephaniah 1.13. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. 
Certainly the vineyard in Isaiah's song means a great deal to his owner, its owner, as is evidenced by the exhaustive work that went into its planting. Not only was the vineyard site carefully selected, but it was cleared of stones which were then used to build a wall around it and even a watchtower in its midst to protect the vines and the fruit they would bear. Only choice cultured vines were planted and the owner went so far as to construct a wine vat in anticipation of the wonderful harvest to come. If you are an avid gardener, you know the hopeful expectancy that this vintner felt. Planting those plants, watching them grow, nurturing them along, waiting for the harvest to come. However, as we learn the results of the vintner's hard work, the mood of the song shifts abruptly to a lament. He expected it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. Instead of the plump, juicy, rich grapes that should have come from these beautiful vines that were planted with such care, only bitter, inedible fruit was produced. Now the audience to which the song is addressed is revealed as like a plaintiff in a court, the distressed vintner appeals to them for judgment, and now inhabitants of Jerusalem, and people of Judah, I could say inhabitants of El Segundo, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why? Why did it yield wild grapes? You could just see the listeners nodding their heads as they agreed on the answer to these poignant questions. Clearly, everything that the vineyard needed had been provided. There was nothing more that the vintner could have done, nor did his actions cause the vineyard's failure. The judgment is clear. The vineyard itself is at fault. The love song's tenor shifts once more, this time from grief to anger, as the vintner lays out how he will treat his fruitless vineyard. Again, the litners may be surprised. Instead of ripping out and destroying the vines themselves, the vintner will simply withdraw his protection and care. He will break down the wall and the hedge that keep the vineyard from being trampled. He will destroy the watchtower so that no one can watch for people who might come to steal its fruit. He will stop pruning the vines and cultivating the soil, allowing the vines to weaken and thorns and weeds to take over. And then the vintner says he will do one more thing. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Suddenly, Unexpectedly, the identity of the vintner is revealed. No one can withhold rain except God. And now the song rises to its devastating climax. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah his pleasant planting. He expected justice but saw bloodshed, righteousness but heard a cry. The purpose of the prophet's love song is now clear. 
to show his people how they have failed to meet the expectations of a God who loves them. The vintner's work in the vineyard is a metaphor for God's gracious care for his people. God heard their cries in Egypt and brought them out of slavery. God promised to be with them, led them through the wilderness, brought them into the land, fought for them, and guided them. Yet though God kept God's promises and remained faithful to Israel, the people have failed to respond as God expected. For in the words of Dennis Bratcher, God's creation of a people was not simply that he might have someone to worship him or so that they might exist in the world as a privileged nation of pampered people, no more than the vineyard planted the vineyard, vineyard owner planted the vineyard simply to have pampered plants. They existed in the world because God had chosen them to be a blessing in the world. They had a purpose. Isaiah uses two incredible word plays to make that purpose painfully, even chillingly clear. God expected justice in Hebrew, mishpat, but saw bloodshed, mishpach, righteousness, tetakwa, but heard a cry, tzikah. God expected his people to practice justice, to live in such a way that the vulnerable and needy in the community were protected and fair and equitable relationships were maintained. Likewise, God expected his people to embody righteousness, God's righteousness, to not only live by God's laws, but to cultivate right relationships with others, relationships that promote peace and wholeness. Instead, God sees violence and hears the cries of the oppressed. The rest of chapter 5 makes God's complaint more explicit. The prophet cries out against the wealthy who ignore the rights of the poor, the corruption of the legal system, and the callous treatment of the vulnerable. In spite of God's care, Israel failed to produce the fruit of justice and righteousness, and at the end of the song, it is not a vineyard but the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the people of Judah who stand condemned. This is not the kind of scripture we want to hear, is it? No. We believe in God's grace, in God's unmerited, undeserved, unfailing love, the love that we see in Isaiah's description of the vintner's care for his vineyard, the love that we know from Jesus Christ, and oh, we would happily stop with just those first verses or two. But we need to pay attention to the rest of this ancient love song, for it serves to remind us that even grace expects a response, that the relationship that God offers to us is a two-way relationship. Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, all the prophets, Make it clear that God is passionately engaged with God's people, with us. And that God desires us to be passionately engaged with God and with the world that God created and loves. As I pointed out before, a contemporary of Isaiah, the prophet Micah, puts these two halves of the whole of our relationship of God together when he wrote, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you 
but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus himself agreed. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second one is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We are called both to love God and to embody God's love by bearing the fruit of justice and righteousness in our relationships with others. What makes this passage as beautiful as it is so hard to read, or maybe another thing that makes it so hard to read, is that even though we know what is expected of us, much of the time we yield wild grapes. We bear the inedible fruit of selfishness and indifference and apathy, which unfortunately nurtures the bitter fruit of hatred and greed and violence in our society. And like the people of Israel, we stand self-condemned. And this passage offers us another uncomfortable truth, that like a parent disciplining her child, God will allow us to suffer the consequences of our actions or lack thereof. I can't help but think of the epidemic of gun violence that plagues our nation and the devastating fires in the Amazon rainforest, fires that have been primarily caused by human indifference to the importance of that rainforest for the health of our planet. And I think, yes, God still loves us, but God grieves for us. And yet there is hope, even in Isaiah. In chapter 27, Isaiah sings another song, a song that sees a future beyond judgment. On that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing about it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. I guard it night and day so that none can harm it. I have no wrath. If it gives me thorns and briars, I will march against it. I will burn it up or else let it cling to me for protection. Let it make peace with me. Let it make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And then, there are these words from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. As the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy 
may be complete. Christ promises that if we remain connected to him, if we abide in his love, we will bear good fruit. This is our hope. A hope that by God's grace will be realized in lives of justice and righteousness and joy. As we gather around Christ's table today to share the bread and cup, let us humbly give thanks for the love of the divine vintner and for the opportunity to share in his work by bearing the fruit of justice and righteousness. Let us also give thanks that through Christ, God offers us forgiveness and a new beginning when we fail to do so. To that end, I invite you now to find your bulletins again and to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed there.